Good morning, church. Hope you're all doing well. Promises to be a beautiful day today, so get out in God's creation and enjoy a little bit of that, will you please? And congratulations to our graduates, both high school and college. Uh, we are so proud of you. I know it's been a different year. I know this didn't end up how you wanted it to be, but you're going to use this as a springboard to do great things for God. I just know you will. So congratulations from all of us. Today we are winding up our series, If these walls could talk. And I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed going through the scriptures and seeing how God has used so many different unique events and moments throughout history. Now, you know, if you know me at all, you know that I really enjoy history. And some of history's greatest moments came when they were, well, least expected and in a manner no one anticipated. For instance, did you know, did you know that the Revolutionary War nearly ended less than two months after the Declaration of Independence? That came on July 4th, 1776. But in August, August the 27th of 1776, Washington and the Continental Army faced off against the British in what would be the war's largest battle in terms of troops deployed. Known as the Battle for Long Island or the Battle for Brooklyn Heights, the British gained a decisive victory and gained control of the port of New York, which they would hold on to for the remainder of the Revolutionary War. I mean, it was a devastating blow uh, to the American colonies. The beleaguered Continental Army retreated, but found itself trapped on the banks of the mile-wide East River by the evening of August 29th. By morning, the remaining 9,000 Patriot troops would either be dead or captured, and the revolution would come to a swift and tragic end. Washington, however, had a plan. Kind of far-fetched, but it was a plan. Under cover of darkness, Colonel Glover and his regiment of fishermen would ferry the troops across the river. And so about 8 o'clock that evening, they began the evacuation. Now, that evening's heavy rains and adverse winds really hindered the withdrawal, and it became apparent that there was going to be a huge contingent of soldiers left on the wrong side of the river come morning. Washington was determined to remain with the stranded troops. He would be the last man off of the banks. By sunup, they realized it would require another three hours at least to get the rest of the troops across the river. That would be too late. Washington prayed, soldiers prayed, and as dawn broke, the strangest thing happened. A thick, unusual fog settled in along the banks and across the river, so heavy, in fact, that a man could not be seen just six yards away. And despite the sunlight above, the haze did not lift until the last four boats containing Washington himself had pulled away from the shore. By the time the British troops could see, the last four boats were too close to the opposite shore to be able to intercept them. The entire Continental Army had been moved across the water against adverse conditions. The Revolutionary War continued. On that day, our nation's liberty rested on a providential fog that no one could have anticipated. In the closing months of our Lord's earthly ministry, there was a moment that occurred that no one expected, and it happened in a manner that no one anticipated. Now, we know that Jesus taught multitudes, fed thousands, healed hundreds, but apart from his 12 closest disciples, Jesus didn't have a whole lot of close friends in this world that we are aware of. 
There was this family, two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, however, that we know were close friends of Jesus, and their home became a respite for Jesus and the disciples on numerous occasions. And so here near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we find this moment that is surrounded by the death of Lazarus himself. And oh, if only tomb walls could talk, what a story they would tell. Now, we're going, to, we're going to pick up the story. This morning, I'm going to preach in more of a narrative style. I want to go through the story because it's one of the most beautiful. It's one of my favorite in scriptures. Matter of fact, folks, if it were possible to go back to a day and time where we could visit a day in the life of Jesus, this would be one of my top choices to go back to this particular moment. Lazarus became deathly ill. When it became apparent that he was not going to recover on his own, the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord the one you love is sick. Now this is all in John chapter 11, so if you've got your scriptures, I want you to turn there and follow along the narrative with me. And in verse five, John goes on to say, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we know that this friendship was a deep and strong friendship. Now this powerful moment in the life and ministry of Jesus has a lot of unique twists and turns that we often, because of our familiarity with the story, overlook. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I know this is not easy to do when you know a story, but, but pretend, act like you're hearing the story for the very first time. Listen with a different kind of ear this morning. And here's the first difficult twist to explain. Jesus got the message, but he didn't go. Jesus did not return to Bethany. He stayed put for another two days. Now that's a long time when someone you love is sick and near death. And especially when you realize that it took the messenger two days to get to Jesus, who is now in Perea, on the other side of the Jordan River. And here comes the second twist. Jesus sends this message back with the messenger to Mary and Martha. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So, you know, the messenger hears this. He, he knows what the message is, or at least he thinks he does. But what a disappointing message it turned out to be when he gets back after another two days and learns that Lazarus has indeed been dead for two days. This has got to be confusing. It was disheartening for Martha and Mary to receive this message. After all, they had witnessed countless miracles from Jesus. But for him to be so blatantly wrong about their brother, it had to make them question if he really was who they believed him to be, the Messiah. Undoubtedly, they discussed his words over and over again and concluded that probably, even though Jesus had been speaking literally, they took him figuratively. Well, of course, Jesus is talking about in heaven. In heaven, Lazarus would still be alive. The Lord's delay, however, though, really suited the disciples well. <laughs> they weren't anxious to go back anywhere near Jerusalem, and Bethany was just less than two miles east of Jerusalem. You see, they were on the other side of the Jordan River for a reason. At the recent Feast of Dedication, Jesus had incited such anger among the religious leaders that they were about to take him by force and stone him on the spot. But Jesus and the disciples were able to... Uh, slip away. Now, I want you to understand something here. Jesus is not hiding out of fear. 
And Jesus is not trying to instill some kind of confidence and courage in the disciples. He is waiting until the time is just right, until all the pieces of God's plan have come together. You see, the Lord always acts in his good time. And that time was only about two months away, but the timing had to be perfect. But of course, the disciples didn't understand that. Mary and Martha didn't understand that. Nobody understood that. Jesus is the only one. The disciples were just glad to be not going back to Jerusalem. So about this time, the messenger arrived back in Bethany. Jesus announced to the disciples that they would indeed return because Lazarus was asleep. And Jesus was going to wake him up. Now the 12 immediately begin to raise objections. Oh Lord, we we can't go back there, they'll kill you. They'll kill us too because we're your disciples. And the disciples were suddenly filled with fear, anxiety, and hopelessness. All feelings that so many people have been experiencing during these last many weeks. Fear, anxiety, and hopelessness. That's why this story is so important uh, for us today. Besides, they reasoned, If Lazarus was asleep, he'll get better. So here's the third twist. What the disciples took literally, he's asleep. This time, Jesus meant figuratively. And like us, Jesus was trying to soften the harshness of death. Sleep was a euphemism for death in that day and culture, just like we use euphemisms today. We say, he passed away, or she's gone home, or he has crossed over, and dozens more as opposed to saying somebody died. We want to soften the harshness of death that is so apparent around us. In verse 14 of John 11, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. At that point, the disciples fully expected the return trip to end poorly. John 11, 16, Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Did you notice? Did you notice that it was the great, awesome apostle Thomas who came through with conviction and faith? At that moment, he was willing to go wherever Jesus was going to go, face an angry mob, and if necessary, lay down his life for the Lord. Thomas feared that their story might end in a cemetery, And it did, (laughs) just not the one he expected and just not in the way he expected. May may I suggest to you this morning that each one of us needs a cemetery story? Somewhere, somewhere in the recesses of our inner being, we need to bury things, bury things like dishonest practices, slanderous gossip, hateful attitudes, bitter unforgiveness, unfaithful vows, self-centered arrogance, And the list is endless. So take a stroll through the graveyard of your soul and read the tombstones. Are there any graves missing? Are there things in your life that ought to be buried once and for all? What else needs to go away and never come back in our actions and deeds? So with that word of we're going to return, Jesus and the apprehensive dozen left their security on the other side of the Jordan and began the two-day journey back to Bethany. 
So while Jesus and the 12 are on the road, in Bethany, Martha and Mary were juggling multiple emotions at this point in time. They, they are filled with sorrow, confusion, deep disappointment, maybe even a, even a sense of rejection, and most certainly they were angry to a point. On those days before the messenger had returned, don't you wonder how many times they had walked to the end of the lane and scanned the horizon for the one, the one person they just knew would come back and take care of everything. How many whispered conversations did they have with Lazarus as he lay dying? Hang on, brother. Jesus will come. Don't give up, Lazarus. The master is on his way. How often did their prayers speed to heaven's throne only to remain unanswered? How many times did they cry out to God only to be met by silence? I mean, how would you have felt in their shoes? How do you feel when you walk through similar territory? When you scan the horizon for heaven's mercy and faithfully pray for heaven's intervention and yet it does not come. Do you feel a bit betrayed, hurt, hopeless, or even angry with the Lord? Do you reason like this? All my life I've tried to live for Jesus and honor him with my obedience and worship. I've been praying, believing. I've asked for him to intervene, and yet he does not come. I'm confident Martha and Mary felt that way. And when Lazarus died, hope began dying Oh, perhaps if, if Jesus arrives while Lazarus' body is still warm in his bed, like the daughter of Jairus, he'll be raised too. But Jesus didn't come. Or perhaps if Jesus arrives before we get Lazarus' body to the tomb, like the widow's son from Nain, he will be raised too. But Jesus did not come. With every passing moment, hope faded. Day one, no Jesus. Day two, no Jesus. Day three, no Jesus. There was a cultural belief at that day and time that the, the spirit, the soul of the deceased hovered near the grave for three days, but on the third day went home to be with the Lord because there was no longer any hope. On the third day after Lazarus' death, hope died too. The messenger that came back with the words of Jesus must have concluded his words are not true, period. Mary and Martha must have concluded he's not coming, period. Thomas and the disciples must have concluded we're going to die with him, period. Oh, but folks, I'm here to tell you never put a period where God has put a comma. They weren't at the end of the story yet. And see, when you cannot see beyond the moment, it may appear that a period has been placed in the storyline of your life. But take a closer look. God often puts a comma where we expect a period. So where are the grammatical periods in your life? I'll never find a job, period. I'll never get married, period. We'll never be able to have children, period. I just don't fit in, period. I can't go on without the one I love, period. Oh, never put a period. Never put a period where God has put a comma. By the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has spent four days in paradise. And when word reached the house that Jesus was coming, Martha went out to meet him. And this is how the conversation went as recorded in John 11. 
Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I can only speculate on the emotion, the tone, the frustration that may have been in her voice. I think it may have been mixed with disappointment and, and mild anger even. And, and then her words softened. There she stood in the presence of Jesus after all. And she said, but, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, oh, I, I know, I know. He'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, there's Martha's answer. There's her explanation of what Jesus had sent ahead as his message to her. She had rationalized in her mind. I know, I know, someday, someday he'll live again. Then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. At first, Martha senses that Jesus is simply expressing his sorrow and hope as any good Jewish believer would have done looking forward to the resurrection at the end of time. You see, the word resurrection, anastasis, literally means to stand up again, to get up after falling down. It is the word from which we get our name, Anastasia, one hoping in the resurrection. Jesus is not some prophet, however, anticipating a far-off resurrection of the dead. He is claiming to be the living resurrection. He states that he is the power of resurrection, that resurrection exists in him. Do you believe, Martha? And out of her mouth flows, pours this wonderful confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside, verse 28. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Did you notice the identical same response that Martha had given him? They, they had talked this over. They had worked it through their own mind. Oh, if only Jesus had made it, he could have healed our brother. Even the friends and professional mourners present reasoned that if Jesus could heal the blind, could he not have kept Lazarus from dying? But if Martha spoke her words to his face, Mary cried her words at his feet. Three times we meet Mary in the New Testament, and she's always at the feet of Jesus. In their home, she listened at his feet with conviction. On the road here, just down from the house, she listened at his feet with sorrow. And at a feast that would come in a little bit later to celebrate Lazarus' life, she knelt at his feet in worship, anointing his feet with expensive perfume. And, note, and notice the response of our Lord. Martha's moment with him appeals to his reason. Mary's moment touches his heart. And never before have we witnessed such emotion in Jesus. Now don't, don't miss this next part of the text. John eleven thirty three. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. We miss so much in our English translations. The text, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, is powerful, more powerful than those words denote. 
The first word has more to do with anger than it does with sorrow. It literally means to snort like a horse. When a horse snorts and paws at the earth, he is getting ready to attack. And the second word literally means stirred up or agitated like a storm-tossed sea. Jesus is more angry than he is sad, angry at death, angry at Satan, whose deceitful cunning continues to ravage the lives of the people he loved. He is on the attack against our greatest enemy. And as he approaches the tomb of Lazarus, his emotions stumble again, and he weeps. The shortest verse in the Bible is long on compassion. Could it be that what he saw reflected in this garden tomb was a graphic reminder of what was lost in that first garden that we find in Genesis? Could it be that his reflection on this garden tomb reminded him of a vision of another garden tomb that he would enter in a couple months to bring forth for us hope and eternal life through his resurrection? There he stood, the resurrection and the life in tears. God was crying. Can any picture be more reassuring? Ken Geyer writes this. He says, what an incredible Savior, weeping not just for us in our sin, but weeping with us in our suffering. It is remarkable that our plight could trouble his spirit, that our pain could summon his tears. He gathers his composure. No longer does his voice falter. There is power in his voice. Take away the stone. Martha is shocked. Oh, Lord, after four days, the smell. They surely assumed that he was going to go in, that he wanted to see the body, but Jesus does not enter the tomb. The next words come with a tone of defiance. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And Jesus prays to the Father. It's not a prayer of permission, but one of affirmation about what is to happen. The prayer and the pending miracle would confirm that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. All of creation waited breathlessly. And in a loud voice, Jesus demands, Lazarus, come out. Sort of like a mummy, he shuffles out or maybe even hops out of the tomb. The crowd is stunned. They are so stunned that Jesus has to remind them, go ahead, unwrap him, take the burial cloths off of him, let the man loose. And suddenly, the professional mourners are out of work and the robes of sorrow give way to party clothes. The celebration begins because not even the decay of death is too strong for Jesus to overcome. Oh, if only tomb walls could talk, what a story they could tell. W wouldn't you love to know what it was like to spend four days in paradise and then come back? Now, you may be thinking, okay, great story, but what, what does this story have to do with my life? All right, well, just a couple, three things here I want you to remember. They're brief, but remember them because they're important. Number one, remember God is at work in your life for the greater good. Even when silence is the response of heaven to your prayers and Jesus doesn't seem to show up when you need him most. I want you to know he is there when you need him most. Even when you can't sense him or feel him, he's there. Number two, remember his tears at the tomb of Lazarus are proof of his compassion for us at every moment of life. 
Number three, remember the only way you're going to get out of this world alive is if you know Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. And number four, remember this. If he can raise the dead, then he and he alone is Savior. You cannot walk away from this story without making some choice. You can't say, well, that's a nice story, and then go on as if nothing has changed because everything changed. If he can raise the dead, he alone is Lord and Savior. If this is a hoax and a lie, then everything else he said and did is a hoax and a lie. It is a dividing line for us this moment in time. You're either in or you're not, but you cannot be indifferent. On that day in Bethany, some believed, others tattled to the religious leaders. Some lives were forever changed because they recognized Jesus as Savior. Some lives missed the change that only Jesus could bring as Savior. Where do you stand on that dividing line? What do you believe about him? Because if he's Lord, you need to follow him. Living by faith is always easy when you know the rest of the story. (laughs) I like this quote from Soren Kierkegaard. Life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood looking back. As I read through John 11, I find myself thinking, oh, be patient, Martha. Hold on just a little bit longer, Mary. Everything is going to be fine. Just wait. Jesus is on his way. But you see, when you cannot see beyond the moment, that moment of grief can be overwhelming. Jesus could have hurried to Bethany. Jesus could have spared Lazarus that death. He could have spared the sisters the agony of losing somebody they loved. But do you realize what we would have lost if Jesus had done it any other way? This is one of the greatest moments in time because of what it teaches us. What's more, we would have lost some of Christ's most consoling and hopeful words. We would have lost one of those great I am passages. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, our gain from everything we learn out of this story came at Lazarus' expense. But folks, if all I ever knew of the earthly ministry of Jesus is what I read in John chapter 11, it would be enough for me to glimpse his unconquerable power, to feel the depth of his compassion, and to hear his words of everlasting hope. He is the one. He is the one who will eventually raise my lifeless body. He is the one who saves my lost soul. And once and for all, he has shattered the old cultural belief Hope doesn't end on the third day. Hope begins on the third day. Oh, how much we would have missed if the Lord had done it any other way. If he had done it as we would have expected and as we would have anticipated. Aren't you glad history's greatest moments are filled with those unexpected moments and unexpected and anticipated manners? Now listen to me carefully. We live our lives here like Mary and Martha lived those four days in Bethany. We seldom see the rest of the story in this world. We question God's love, God's promises, and God's hope in our crisis moments. But that is why this moment, this event, is so vital. Because even when Jesus is silent, he's listening, he's answering, he's working. Even when we cannot see him on the horizon, he's here. Mary and Martha were only a few verses away from a life-changing experience that they could never have anticipated. 
Don't ever forget that at the lowest point in your life, that in Christ you may be only a few verses away from a life-changing experience that you could never have anticipated. Don't ever put a period where God has put a comma. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this grand event in the moment of Lazarus' earthly life and transition and in the concluding moments of Jesus' earthly ministry. Lord, it reminds us of your great compassion and your great power and our great hope through him as Savior. And Lord, I know that there are folks who have been wrestling with whether or not to become a follower of Jesus, whether or not to embrace him as Lord and Savior and become a Christian. And I pray, Lord, that you will give them the strength and the courage to be able to do exactly that. Lord, help them to rise to the challenge, to let us know so that we can help them in this journey, so that they can experience that new life that comes through baptism, that picture of a death, burial, and resurrection that emulates this story, and even more importantly, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as we serve you to do so in the spirit of he who is the resurrection and the life. And it is in his name we pray.